Welcome to another episode of Super Exploitation and Resistance brought to you by Common Frontiers and the Canadian Labour Movement. I'm Raul Burbano, Program Director of Common Frontiers and your new host replacing Jose Luis. Jose has moved on to new endeavours and we encourage you to continue to follow him and his work on Twitter at Fernando Seja. We are super excited for him and wish him the best of luck. The podcast will continue to share the perspectives of labour leaders, activists, organisers and social movements to a North American audience. We are trying a new format, more of a casual conversational one, and we hope that you will enjoy it. In this current episode, we'll be doing a roundup on Latin America, exploring questions such as the impacts of the Ukraine-Russia war in the region, electoral politics in countries like Colombia, and the surge of the new left in the region. We have two very special guests and dear friends of mine, Pamela Arancidia, a Toronto-based labor activist and researcher, and Michelle Munjanatu, an international solidarity organizer living in New York City. Both are committed internationalists and experts on issues related to the region. Well, I guess the, the most important thing to talk about is, is the, the, the biggest topic in the news right now, which is the Ukraine-Russian uh, conflict. Uh, and obviously with the sanctions on Russia, it has humongous impacts globally, uh, you know, for people in North America and South America and the rest of the region. And we think it's important a little bit to talk about what is that impact to Latin America. Latin America has a strong economic and political ties uh, to countries like Russia. They've also been quite critical of the expansion of NATO uh, in the region. So, you know, it, it's, it's going to be an important area. And it has humongous impact. So I think we're going to talk a little bit about that and what it implies for all of us. Thank you, Raul, for introducing that topic. I think what we have really witnessed since February 24th, which marks the start of the Russian invasion, is kind of the Western left being caught flat-footed and unable to respond and navigate the contradictions of this moment. This whole time, I have been so glad to see that Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua have been very strong in their analysis of the situation, in understanding that history did not begin in 2022, but has antecedents that have long, long roots within history, especially within even from 2014 and the occupation of, and the, uh, you know, the color revolution and the conflict in the Donbass. So I really appreciated what Maduro said back in February. And he said, we in Venezuela have been attentive to the events in Russia and Ukraine. And we've been and we have been observing not just now but been observing the whole evolution of the process where the north american empire and nato intend by military means to end russia and to end this multipolar world that is already existing and so for for these countries it's very clear the conflict and also what's risked is very clear and they must develop very clear positions and even Evo, Evo has been very, very clear in his prescriptions for this time. He sympathizes with Russia, understands NATO aggression, and is committed to using RUNASUR, which is the bloc of socialist Latin American countries, to be an initiative against NATO, which he believes is the biggest threat to humanity. It's interesting that you mentioned Evo Morales in terms of, I mean, you know, Evo and, and, and Bolivia in general through their constitution. They're, they're a pacifist nation, they're opposed to war. So I think it's important to differentiate. You can be against war, you can be against the expansion, occupation of a country like Ukraine, but also you can be against the expansion of the military threats that NATO poses to, you know, not only to Russia, but to obviously countries around the world. 
So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting position to be in. Uh, it, the debate in general is just, it's either you're pro-Russian or pro-Ukrainian, and there's no in-between and there's no analysis. And I think that's the biggest kind of deficiency we have right now around this conflict. Right. And I think um, we're also witnessing how immediately the whole-scale sanctions regime on Russia is impacting the whole world, impacting the petrochemical industry, the fertilizer industry, and it is having ramifications on Russia's partners in Latin America and even others who are reliant on the global market. So I know, Pam, you've been observing things from Peru. Yeah, this whole situation has had an enormous impact on what's been happening in that particular South American country. So there were problems already in advance of that, right? That there have been, for example, supply chain issues that have been created around the world by the pandemic. So there was already discontent in Peru prior to this conflict. But what we've seen since the, the war between Russia and Ukraine began is that, the, as you said, the prices of fuel, of the whole like, uh, you know, gas and fertilizer have gone up because of sanctions against Russia and, and that whole situation, especially with Russia being one of the world's you know, top suppliers of fertilizer. So what we've seen happening in Peru is that um, near the end of last month in March, you had a situation where fuel prices went up again in Peru. And you had mass mobilizations we're seeing around the world, the trucker convoys or of, of those kind of protests. And I think sometimes here we tend to think of it only in the context that we saw in Canada of, you know, the truckers paralyzing the country as a protest. Well, actually, this has been going on around the world and for different reasons. So in Peru, you had this on, on I think it was the 28th of March, you had mass protests in the country to protest the rise in fuel prices right around the same time I think that this was happening in Spain where they also had massive protests but it really doesn't get coverage so you had that situation and then you had Pedro Castillo's government trying to deal with that situation earlier this week on Monday I think it was the fourth of, of April, his government tried instituting a curfew, un toque de queda, that would last for the whole day Tuesday, which led to even greater mass protests. And by Tuesday evening, it was the situation had devolved to such a point that he had to call off the curfew before it expired, just because people have been hitting the streets, especially in Lima, in mass numbers. And you see how this whole situation, the problem of affordability, is creating instability for the government as a whole. So right now, a lot of the talk is about the disapproval rating of Castillo's government, which has now reached a disapproval rate of 76%. They think that any day now the government could go. And it's more than likely because at this point, he doesn't have support really from any sectors in, in Peru, right? Like it's obviously he's always had the right against him. But at this point, he doesn't even have the left with him anymore. So I think it's, it, it, it sh wouldn't be surprising if in the next few days we see that Castillo is removed from office, especially and just 
to contextualize this a little bit for our audience and for people who might not be super familiar with Peru, this is part of a larger problem when it comes to being able to govern the country because Peru has a constitution that it brought in in 1993 where Congress can impeach the president on all sorts of grounds because there's very loose interpretation. So yeah, a president can be removed for death, but also for things like moral or physical disability as determined by Congress. What does moral disability mean? It probably whatever Congress decides it is. And so you've just seen like turnover. You, we just have not seen a presidential government be able to stay in office for the whole term. These are like soft coups, right? You're using the quasi-judicial system that is you know, quasi-legal, but exactly. obviously being exploited by the right-wing to undermine the governing of a leftist government who may or may not have, you know, you know, good policies. Exactly. But and and it just goes to show how this war um, between Russia and Ukraine is exacerbating already existing problems in Latin America. And so Latin Americans have done nothing to create that conflict, but they are living through the consequences of it in ways that these NATO countries or the European Council are not even considering. Like they are not considering the whole human impact of this around the globe. So that's a bit of the situation. You can see how it's been playing out in Peru. And I know that there's different different sure. models for, for how people have been dealing with this, the, the Ukraine one. And I think, Michelle, you had mentioned that there's other countries doing things differently. Well, I think also just in terms of the UN vote, right, it, it kind of shows that you know, Latin America and the Caribbean is, is divided on, on the vote to expel Russia from the Human Rights Council. I don't know if you guys have seen, but I'm sure you've seen Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, Bolivia voted against it. Other countries uh, like Chile, Colombia, obviously, uh, I think Peru as well voted in favor of it. So, you know, you, you definitely see those divisions and how it impacts the region. Absolutely. You know, here in the United States, workers are getting shocked by the prices at the pump. Um, they are really incredible, probably like the highest I've seen in my lifetime. So it's really astounding. But there's a difference when the people are in power and the government isn't responding to the whims of the bourgeoisie or influenced by a fractured governing coalition. In Nicaragua, where they like to say, el pueblo es presidente, the government announced that it would subsidize at a very high rate the price of gas to help cushion the effects of this drastic change in commodity prices that we're seeing on the global market. And it's really important to have those things to be able to manipulate your economy to protect the citizenry because the goal of these sanctions is mass immiseration. Really, the model has been Venezuela. Venezuela had the total impact of the Cuban blockade put on it in five years. And now in Russia, they put that in like the span of a few weeks. So I think we're going to see, you know, Venezuela is a model. And in so many ways, it is also part of the conflict today. So uh, I think we can get into that next. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think it's also important to point out that, you know, these sanctions, they're illegal because they're not sanctioned by the United Nations. So they're unilateral coercive measures. They don't work. I mean, there is no play. They haven't worked in Venezuela. Yes, they've destroyed the Venezuelan economy. In Cuba, it's done the same, but it hasn't had the desired effect, which is regime change. It hasn't happened in Venezuela. It hasn't happened in Cuba. Uh, it hasn't happened in Nicaragua, right? So, we, you know, the, these sanctions, all they're going to do is hurt Russian people. It's obviously going to impact the, the world market economically. Russia, as Pam mentioned, exports lots of uh, fertilizer, also wheat, 
oil, obviously. Uh, and, it, you know, it's ironic, though, how we see the United States and sort of, you know, the, the hypocrisy of its imperialist policies, because obviously when, when, the, when the war, you know, started early March, what we saw is that the Biden administration, the first thing they did is they flew a high-level mission to Venezuela to undertake talks with what they consider is the dictator, right? Because they want to, you know, help uh, Venezuela. It could be to help themselves to produce, you know, or refine Venezuelan oil so that they could sell that to, to Europe in order to uh, circumvent any impact from Russia. And that's kind of the hypocrisy that you see. You know, all of a sudden, this dictator, of Nicolas Maduro, according to the United States, now has become a good person, and they engage in very high-level talks. Now, I'm not aware of much that came out of it beyond that uh, Venezuelan goodwill gestures freed a couple of two U.S. citizens, Gustavo Cardenas and, and uh, Jorge Fernandez, who were former CITCO uh, oil executives who were arrested and charged with, you know, convicted with corruption. Wait, but doesn't Chevron now have the green light to go ahead and do work in Venezuela? So I, I think Chevron, they, the, they yeah, have the green light now. So, so there have been, and I, it's just hilarious to me because, like you said, a few weeks, literally a few weeks ago, until a few weeks ago, Maduro, like you said, was the dictator. And, you know, they were still talking about President Guaido. And yeah. that went right out the window. Where has Guaido even been? He's probably still licking his wound somewhere. So I just think it's so ironic. But Again, you know, one thing is to remind folks, too, is that Maduro, again, when we go back to talking about, you know, you mentioned the sanctions being illegal because the only body that can approve those is the UN. Well, in the same way, the UN is the only body that can recognize internationally the head of state of a government, and they never stopped recognizing Maduro. And so... All these attempts at pretending that Guaido was a president, at pretending that he was a democratically elected person, that's nonsense. He never was. The UN never recognized him. And in fact, now we're seeing that the US knew that and was aware of that because they have re-engaged Maduro. So like Raul said, it's like this ongoing hypocrisy. And I think that's for, for activists around the world or progressive. It's hard to take the U.S. Uh, in face value in terms of when they're talking about their in the Ukraine to help you know Ukrainians free them from the tyranny of Russia. I mean, when you look at U.S. foreign policy in Latin America, it's hard to really accept that. And when you've lived through the experience of U.S. imperialism in Latin America, we see Venezuela. I think is is a perfect example, right, where they've accepted a president who doesn't doesn't exist, Guaido, who who is just self-proclaimed. But today. Guaido doesn't make a difference to them. And, you know, Maduro is now the person they're dealing with because right now Maduro and Venezuela and, their, and Venezuela's oil could help them in the war in Russia and Ukraine. So I think if people want to understand U.S. foreign policy in, in Europe right now and Ukraine, it's always good to look at what's happening in Africa and in Latin America because you get a good sense of it. Uh, I think for, from a Venezuela perspective, it, it seems to help Venezuela quite a lot. It puts them in a position where they could potentially get some relief a little bit, I think, on sanctions. I believe that Exxon and, uh, had, had always had an exemption around the, the sanctions. So they were always producing a little bit. So they've always got to win from month to month exemptions. But I think right now what the U.S. is looking at is you know, potentially lifting sanctions at a bigger level so that Venezuela could ramp up its oil production and then obviously could be refined uh, in the U.S. and then would be sent to Europe. I think for Venezuela, what it puts for them is, first of all, you know, obviously the Venezuelan economy is 
is on the uptake, even with all the illegal sanctions. I think it's increasing by like 20%, according to kind of uh, forecasters. And, and it has many factors. Some of it, obviously, it's increase in oil. But obviously, there's other internal factors, Michelle, that I know that you're quite familiar with. And maybe you can talk a little bit about them. We really should be paying more to the Venezuelan working class and the heroic efforts they've put into restoring several areas of production. When the oil embargo was placed on Venezuela in January 2019, they were exporting 500,000 barrels a day. And oil production fell to its lowest in December 2020. Today, thanks to the hard work of the oil workers, they've been able to restore production to upwards of 1.7 million barrels a day. And this is the fruit of careful attention over four to five years of identifying inefficiencies in production and working fastidiously to increase production in this time where it's so critical. You know, in Venezuela, there's long queues, but also even transporting food between states is hard when you don't have fuel for domestic consumption. And so this is a really heroic effort. And I think we really need to recognize the role individual workers have been empowered to take during this crisis. And even, you know, I would say the Maduro government is understanding that they need to let these sectors lead. Another example that I think is really fascinating is when I visited Venezuela in March 2019, I arrived in amidst the largest blackout, I think, that had ever happened in Venezuelan history. And that was electrical sabotage. It took 40 days for electricity workers to bring back the power. And actually, a similar sabotage happened this January. But because workers had learned from that experience in, in um, March 2019, it only took a few days for everything to be restored. And that is because they created manuals after 2019 to help restore electricity. And in fact, you barely even heard about it. But that is an example of how the Venezuelan working class has been empowered and is concerned with social, the social nature of production. And there's a lot of things that went into this, this economic you know, miracle, as you know, many people are saying. You bring something up, Michelle, and I, it's not, I don't want to take us on a tangent into this, but I also don't want to miss the opportunity to at least just mention it briefly or even just ask your opinion on it you're talking about the working class and it, you know the, this more grassroots level and one thing that has been on my mind lately is the work that Jorge Arreaza has been doing at the level of the oh what is it I'm thinking maybe I'm communes the, uh, okay it is I was thinking I'm like maybe I'm thinking of the Chilean context the comunas right like that work and I'm just wondering do you do you have any thoughts on that? Like the fact that Arreaza has now been put in this role or like that the particular work that is happening around that level? I've been following his work and it just seems like there's this um, push in, you know, back to the grassroots. Yeah, I definitely can speak to that. I'm, and I'd be curious to hear what Raul thinks because he was uh, there in um, December for the major mayoral and gubernatorial elections. But I think it's really encouraging that Ariasa has been put in a role where he's responsible for empowering and maintaining relationships with, with communes. And I do think the commune movement has been a huge engine of change and progress, especially during this period of, of extreme suffering under you know, unilateral coercive measures. I think there is a new push to bring attention to to what the, the comuneros are, are working on, especially because there's 
still incredible violence directed at peasants and campesinos, the incursions from um, the Colombian border. Um, so the assassinations from territorial landowners are still ongoing and there's not been an effective way to prevent that because, because you know, the situation is very difficult. But I think putting someone like Ariasa in charge demonstrates that this is a priority for the government and that it is production and, and communal communal solutions developed at the at the cell of the community member at, at the level of the commune that will produce that transition to socialism. Mm-hmm. And for, I mean, Ariasa, for people who are not aware, he used to be the foreign minister for Venezuela, and now he's headed, he's the minister of, of communes, I guess. And yeah, I think it, it does symbol to a move to the importance of communes. I mean, communes have been the basis of the Bolivarian revolution. Unfortunately, in my opinion, is that it's, it's it, you know, the, the electoral machine has kind of taken priority and sort of the communes and the work at the grassroots to some extent has kind of lost uh, support, traction, I don't know, for whatever, for many reasons that, you know, we don't really need to get into. And I, and I think so, and that has been a challenge for, for Venezuela. I mean, you've seen a lot more criticism from from Abajo, from the Communist Party, from some of the other uh, more leftist organizations. So, uh, you know, I'm hoping, and maybe this is a positive signal that, uh, you know, Maduro and and the current government is going to focus more on the grassroots and and, and kind of bring that back to life, and less on the the party and the political apparatchik, which, in my opinion, has become quite bureaucratic, and I think has stalled to some extent, the, the kind of the dynamicism that the Bolivarian Revolution brings and kind of what the uniqueness of Venezuela. So I'm hoping that, that that is what's the case. So I'm excited about that. Me too. I You know, what I do think is that maybe the loss in Barinas, in the state of Barinas, was a wake-up call to like, you know, as you said, Raul, that the, the, the movement of the comunas or whatnot had maybe lost a little bit of momentum or attention. And it seems like there's been a recognition that, you need to go back to that, that, that that's where the answer lies, right? Um, solo el pueblo eh, puede salvar al pueblo, right? Only the people can save the people. So I think maybe that, I hope that this is a sign of a recognition of the need, the, the need to go back to that popular grassroots space. And yeah, we'll see, we'll see how this plays out. So Pam, you've been you follow a lot what's going on in Chile. Do you want to talk a little bit about what's going on there? Because definitely there's a lot of interesting stuff. <laughs> yes, I do follow this very closely, and I've been very very frustrated. <laughs> so Boric um, has now been in government for about a month, I think. I think it's been about four weeks actually. Is it four weeks today? What to say about this? Beyond you know, I think for many people, we already expected that it would be. A bit of a disappointment. I guess I'll start off by saying that when when the the protests began in October 2019, one of the main slogans was neoliberalism was born in Chile and neoliberalism will die in Chile. I'm always hoping that that is true, that it will die in Chile, but I have no hope that it will happen under the Boric government. I think that he is much more politically, I think, what would you say? Not politically aligned, but I think his politics are much closer to the concertación than one would hope for if you want to see real change. So I'm just trying to think of some of the the main things that have happened in, in these four weeks. 
Well, I, you know, a lot of them have involved the Minister uh, for Interior, Isquiasiches, who used to be the president of the medical college. I think when it comes to state security, like domestic security, they want to take a public health approach. I think that was what was signaled by the fact that Isquiasiches was brought on as a minister. I don't think that it's been going the way anybody hoped, right? So she went to Walmapu. She traveled to Walmapo, Walmapu, or which is in Chilean terms, they call it the Araucania, but we call it Walmapu, according to what the Mapuche people call their own territory. So she went to, to speak to some Mapuche leaders, but I don't think she f- entirely followed protocols when she was going through certain territories. So at one point, gunshots were heard. They weren't fired at the, the delegation, but in the vicinity. And so that created a bit of a situation. Fortunately, Sitches didn't play into the, the rhetoric of, of that some would like about, you know, saying that the Mapuche are violent or that they're not recognizing the Chilean state or whatnot, which they aren't, rightly so. They've never ceded their territory. But I think it highlights that there are sectors within the Mapuche community, within the Mapuche nation, who are not looking to just lay down and say, okay, well, there's now a left-wing friendlier government and we're just going to collaborate without any demands or whatnot. So I think that was eye-opening for the government that they are going to still have, they don't have a green pass here, like a green light to do whatever. They are still going to be held accountable by, by the Mapuche nation. So that created a bit of a situation, but I think it was handled quite well that there wasn't escalating rhetoric or whatnot, but a recognition of the need to, to create and foster dialogue. In terms of still dealing with state security issues, Carabineros, one of the promises that Boric's government you know, had made was to, um, I'm trying to think of the English word, they were talking about a refundación of Carabineros. So I think essentially dismantling the current system and building a new one, a refounding of, the, of you know, Carabineros. But now that has changed to the language of reforming Carabineros, which feels like an enormous selling out here, especially given the, the, what it has been like the last few weeks. There have been ongoing protests, so the protests haven't stopped. They might be smaller in size. One of the main demands of protesters is to release political prisoners. Like it's been over two years and there are still political prisoners in Chile. Thanks to a law that was passed through the collaboration of Boric. So there's still political prisoners. People have been protesting and police continue to uh, show violence. And then uh, so on on, uh, March 25th, you had students protesting. A police officer shot a student and that was caught on camera. Um, I don't know if they were, I think they, they might've been blanks. I, I'm not sure. But the point is there's, there's this ongoing excessive use of force on March 25th. It's an informal holiday of the Dia del Joven Combatiente, of the young combatant that commemorates a day when the Chilean students were murdered in the protest during the dictatorship. And it's always a tense day between protesters and students. And Sitges, instead of having a clear, firm position about the need for a complete overhaul, 
of, uh, of Carabineros, which is the, the Chilean state police, instead was talking about the need to also support Carabineros. It was just completely tone deaf. The level of corruption with police in Chile is out of control. So one of the only criticisms of this new approach of the government, of the Boric government, which is, you know, really in many ways a sellout has been through the Communist Party and Daniel Jadue. So I think that at least from my perspective, the first month has already been a disappointment. We still have political prisoners. The the very first event, you know, you know, moment that was supposed to be dialogue with the Mapuche did not go according to plan because protocols weren't followed. You know, it showed a lack of respect to, to certain territories that they were going through to reach their their formal meeting. And there's this sort of appeasement to Carabineros. So I don't know. That's only in four weeks. Can you imagine? So it's clear that, you know, just because you have a leftist government or a progressive government, you know, the battle doesn't stop and social movements have to continue to struggle in the country to hold, you know, their leadership accountable. It doesn't matter kind of the, the left or right. I think it's important. One thing I forgot to mention in the context of talking about the Mapuche, one of the models that he talks about, oh, there's positive models around the world about how we can engage with indigenous people. And he keeps mentioning Canada. It's like, no, if that's your model, just go away now. Just stop. Don't even try. Like, are you kidding me? Canada has been a model for Israel, for, for the way to displace indigenous peoples. The way we, the ongoing treatment of indigenous peoples here in Canada, like Canada should not be anybody's model unless sure. you are interested in continuing to abuse indigenous peoples, continuing to, you know, abuse human rights. Are, are we kidding? Like, I, I, I just, I can't. I hear you. And also the fact that Boric was really voted in as a rejection of caste and not an endorsement in and of himself, I think is very apparent because he's made so many concessions and his approval ratings are very low. The process of, of the constituent assembly is even and building a new the new constitution. It's that at risk. Vi- yeah, it's at risk. And so I'm just thinking, I think we should stop putting so much stock into student movement leaders without an analysis of their class affiliation, their allegiance to the old regime, et cetera. Like, I think this is this is something that um, Chileans will have to navigate. And hopefully the Communist Party of Chile and other organizers on the street and in the grassroots and in Walmapu and others can can build the alternatives because otherwise this is a certain return to the fascism of Piñera. Yeah, there's a lot of romanticizing of the government, its youth, its, you know, student movement led. But when you look at the policies, you know, they're, they're unsettling, to say the least. And I think that's where we're going to have to have a lot of criticism and push back a lot on, on, on these governments. Absolutely. And, you know, again, one thing I will highlight, because that's so bleak, just one positive and just linking it back to Venezuela and the comunas is that the best work we're seeing in Chile is at the level of the comunas. And I think to me, Daniel Jadue continues to be the model and the way forward, the things that he has been able to accomplish in the Comuna of Recoleta is inspirational. So popular pharmacy where generics are sold at essentially pretty much like at cost, right? You know, popular optometry where glasses are sold at a very affordable price, popular um, hearing clinics where hearing aids are also 
sold super at affordable levels, popular housing, where people have to pay only 25%, I think, of their, it's based on their income. He has he created open universities that function in schools in the evening. Those are key things that, you know, just how do you scale those up, right, to a national level? They yeah, can but I they think- can the needs of the nation, right? No, absolutely. But I think what has what we've seen in Chile, at least, is that leaders from around the country at the communal level, at the municipal level, or the, the municipalidades are following that model. So he continues to engage other local politicians who are taking up that model. And in fact, just last week, I was looking at his social media, he had a visit from a mayor from France who wanted to discuss the, the model in Recoleta. So I think the, the, the Chilean landscape is not, I don't feel particularly optimistic about it at the federal level, but the, the one little island of, of hope that I see is, is what I, what's been happening at those local levels and continues to, see, at least it appears to be spreading. So I think Arreaza and Jadue are onto something here with, with that. Um, Absolutely. With the, yeah. Which is a little different from Colombia, because now we go back to kind of, you know, it's probably we'd be remiss, reminisce if we didn't mention Colombia in the upcoming elections. And that's where talking about the political parties. And that's where, you know, there is some very interesting and progressive things happening. And there's a lot of hope for Colombians. I know uh, in the inside the country, obviously, and in the exterior with with uh, the progressive ticket, right, uh, of Francia Marquez. And, and, and Petro, where, you know, El Pacto Histórico and Colombia Humana, which, you know, is an incredible and inspirational movement that's taken place in political party. Petro, for folks who may not be as familiar, was a former guerrillero with the M19 in his youth and obviously transitioned to politician and to politics. And he has been leading a very progressive campaign in Colombia. I mean, they're the forerunners, uh, Francia Marcus, who's an Afro-Colombian environmentalist, lawyer as well. Uh, you know, they're kind of the inspiration for most Colombians. I'm here in, in Toronto, Canada, and I've never seen how well organized and inspired the Colombian diaspora here in Canada, Toronto, Montreal, specifically organizing around voting and getting people involved. Uh, and the policies are quite uh, are quite progressive, right? So if we look at, you know, they're looking at, move, you know, the proposals are moving away from extractivism and into greener technology, right? They're looking at possible land reform. I mean, you know, how that would look would obviously be, you know, limited, but that is an important component, implementing the peace accords fully, which the current government of Duque, uh, the current government has uh, avoided to do, and the Uribismo and Duque, and all the kind of conservative governments are focusing on more war and continuing to expand that. Pension reform, education reform, you know, free education. These are amazing policies that for a country like Colombia that has some of the highest inequality and poverty rates in the region, it is really a big thing. It's kind of monumental uh, for, for Colombians. So in the recent congressional elections, the Pacto uh, and, and Petro, they, you know, they, they, they gained a majority in terms of votes. They didn't get a majority in the Congress, but they do, you know, they're the forerunners. Uh, there's clearly a lot of support. But I, I think what we need to keep in mind is that Colombia is not, in my opinion, is not a democracy. It's really controlled by mafia, paramilitaries, narco-traficantes. And there's been lots of kind of threats, violence, and even fraud in, in the congressional elections. So we're where many of us Colombians in the exterior and obviously in Colombia are very concerned of that potential fraud and the theft of the elections against Petro and Francia 
and the progressive forces, because really this would be the first time in history that in Colombia, a progressive team would hold political power, maybe not economic power, but at least political power, which would have an humongous ramifications for the region, relations with uh, Venezuela, as you mentioned, Michelle uh, Petro, you know, who's not a big supporter of the Maduro uh, policies or Bolivarianismo, is would, would reinstall you know relations because he believes that it's important to have the economic uh, interaction between Colombia and Venezuela, which is huge. But I think the most important thing for a lot of people right now is how to safeguard the presidential elections that are coming up uh, on May 29th, uh, specifically because I know for the congressional elections, for example, there it, there was large um, calls of fraud by supporters of Petro, the campaign and another campaign, for example. There was, I think, half a million votes were reported stolen from, from Petro and his campaign that the Electoral Council had to come back and recognize. There were more than, like, I think there was about 120,000 polling stations around the country, right, or a whole bunch of them that had no votes for Petro and the, and the, and the you know, you know Colombia Humana. So it's absurd that forerunner in the elections that have so much support would have in certain regions in Colombia no votes whatsoever. That's clearly a potential for fraud uh, and a big concern. Uh, we've seen in Colombia, for example, Francia Marquez has just, she issued a press conference that she's received three death threats just in the last month, right? I mean, the, the, the candidates, like her campaign hasn't received any financing, which they're supposed to be, they're supposed to get from the Electoral Commission in order to help them run these campaigns, because you have to remember, I mean, they don't have any money, they don't have any corporate sponsor sponsorship. So if they don't have the, the funds that have to come from the Electoral Council to run an election, they're already hampered to be it. So it's pretty clear for, for many Colombians in and outside of the country that there is a process of fraud that's gonna take place to steal these elections. And if uh, Colombia, if, if Petro wins, uh, there is going to either be a call of uh, that you know, these elections aren't legitimate. We're going to see kind of the opposite of what we've seen in Colombia. Usually in Colombia, everybody says, oh, the elections are great, even though they're not. But in this case, we might see that, okay, now we have fraud in, in, in Colombia, Petro and, and his team wins. And so it's going to be really, you know, I think it's, gonna, it's important for in, the international community to have their eyes on the elections to support. We at Common Frontiers are going to be sending a delegation of elections observers from Canada from May 21st to June 1st, uh, in order to support Colombians and, and their right to defend their vote. And I don't know of any thoughts around what folks think, but I, I do think that this is probably, uh, you know, one of, one of the most important electoral cycles for Colombian history, but also for the region in the, in the next short period, besides Brazil that'll be coming up at the end of the year. I completely hear you, what you're saying about the importance of these elections, the need for there to be so many eyes and ears on hand to, to ensure the, the fairness of the process, right? And, and for people in the international community to be there watching and ensuring that, that things go according to plan. Just tying this whole situation back to, to what we started with today, which was the, the Russia-Ukraine conflict, a trend that I'm finding super, super scary is how it has once again normalized anti-communist rhetoric you were talking about death threats to and, and not necessarily you know like that the candidates aren't necessarily communist but 
oftentimes the extreme right, any, any Marxist, any socialist, any grassroots movements all get lumped in as, as communists. But just how the, the conflict with, uh, between Russia and Ukraine has once again made it totally acceptable for all sorts of gross rhetoric to be leveled against communists, socialists, Marxists, the left wing, uh, broadly speaking. You know, Raul, the other day you and I were talking about that threat that has been issued by the Aguilas Negras in Colombia, talking about getting rid of Colombians, right, in very violent language. And even just, was it yesterday, I was walking down my street here in Toronto, and I had seen graffiti over top of the Communist Party posters that somebody had drawn over with the sickle and hammer and a line going through it. And then in another language, some I, there's something written there and I, I still have to, I took a picture and have to look at it, but I just, my point is I'm seeing a green light towards fascist language, neo-Nazi language, and a lot of leeway being given to violent anti-communist language. And that is a scary, scary trend. And to me, it's always especially scary in Latin America because we've seen we saw in the 70s and 80s what the U.S.-led anti-communist interventionism looked like. And I'm wondering if, if that's something we're going to be seeing again. And I find that horrifying. Yeah, I think like that's, that is, Pam, you bring up a great point because if Petro wins and if Marquez win, they have to get serious about governing. There are going to be so many threats and so many challenges that will face this government because, you know, as we had mentioned earlier, we had been talking about Colombia is a junior partner for NATO. Plan Colombia was a response to Venezuela, right? In, in so many ways. And I would love to see Colombia affect land reform because when Chavez tried to affect land reform back in the early aughts, it was Colombian paramilitaries who were coming in and assassinating campesinos. So, Regional integration is the key to any progress forward. It's the path to peace. I hope that a Petro win can help solidify these gains, stop the assassination of campesinos, stop the assassination of, of combatants, affect the peace accords. You know, a lot is hanging on this, but I think we should really have a sober analysis of what's to come. We're already seeing what's happening to Castillo. We're seeing what's happening to Boric. I hope Petro is up, is up for the task. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a challenge because, as as Pam mentioned, like McCarthyism and that kind of concept is definitely back in full swing, and it's you know it's become very polarized. Every 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 conflict is polarized. There's no in between. There's no analysis. It's either you support Ukraine or you're a Putin kind of lackey, right? So the same with Venezuela. You either supported U.S. intervention or you were a, a Maduro lackey, right? And communism. Uh, social movement leaders, unionism, all that stuff is all becomes, it becomes a target, right? And the yeah. violence and fascism, which is, you know, on, on sort of the upscale, I think, as you mentioned, Michelle, the only alternative from Latin America to kind of confront this and to stop it is regional integration, right? And that's where if Petro and, if, you know, all the, you know, all the progressive candidates in Latin America, we don't have to mention them all, don't kind of see that as, as a potential to stop them, then one by one, they're going to fall. One by one, they're all going to be sort of targets of the left movement. You know, the, the biggest threat and concern that I see as well is that the war in Ukraine and the sort of the drum, the drumbeat to support 
the, the Ukrainians and their fight is it's bringing that war globally, right? So now we see that in Latin America, Russia with Cuba, uh, Nicaragua, Venezuela talking about potentially, hey, well then why don't we bring some arms or some weapons or some uh, nuclear subs to the, to, the, to the region, right? That Colombia then is like, then why don't I join NATO and go fight uh, and support, you know, the NATO partners? So we definitely see that that's really, the goal is to kind of bring that conflict home to other countries, to other regions. And war is definitely not the solution to anything. And regional integration and is, is the solution. So I think that's a great point. But, and we hope that, uh, you know, the elections in Colombia are maybe that turning point that can kind of help uh, kind of steer Latin America in that direction would be wonderful. Okay, I think that's it from our end. Uh, anything else, any closing remarks from anybody? But this has been great conversation. I think we've learned a lot and we should keep these conversations going. Yeah, thank you, Raul. This was great. It's always fun to be able to, to talk with uh, with you and, and Michelle about Latin America. It's uh, I feel like we need much more conversation on Latin America uh, here in, in Canada and the U.S. because the conversations that are being had are are not great. No, I agreed. I love this conversation. And this is reminding me of the importance of worker militancy. In Peru, you're having, you know, you're having serious challenges to Castillo, but it's also because he's being forced to contend with the with the might of the syndicalists, with the workers. And as we're seeing a, a, late, a wave of uh, Amazon unionization, Starbucks unionization, and, you know, workers in Greece and in Italy are stopping deliveries of missiles and other war machine war products um, that is a type of worker militancy and I think being more apprised of of what's of the real struggles that are happening in Latin America and connecting workers struggles is something that's very important to develop in this time of uh, the high-pitched call for war okay thanks everyone thanks Raul thank you this Michelle. is good thank you I hope you have a good one un abrazo ciao, ciao.